You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, and Naomi's going to come read our text for us. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. region. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you so much for what we see in it. Lord, we pray that you would help us come underneath the authority of your word this morning as a joy. Would you help me to speak as I should? Would you help us all to listen as we should? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this text is kind of tricky. It's kind of wild, right? It raises a lot of questions. I mean, just look at it. Um, questions that come to mind for me. Like, first of all, what does it mean to be demon-possessed? Uh, secondly, why would these demons, these demon-possessed men, come out to see Jesus if, like it says in verse 29, that they're afraid of him? What does it mean for Jesus to torment demons? What did the demons, like, what did they want with the pigs? Like, why did they want to go into the pigs? Like, what's that all about? Um, why were the people wanting Jesus to leave, like it says in verse 34? And, and if these men were so violent, why weren't the people happy when they were delivered from their violence? Well, oftentimes when we read our Bibles, yeah, there's a lot of questions, and that's good. Let's just pause on those questions for a second. I, want, I just want to zoom out and remind us, before we dive into the details here, where we've been in Matthew chapter 8. And what is Matthew chapter 8 all about? So if you see anything from Matthew chapter 8, what Matthew is trying to show an original audience who is reading this or hearing this read for the first time, and us 2,000 years later, is I think one main thing about Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus has ultimate authority, that Jesus has ultimate authority. Now just look back at the chapter with me. Let's just, let's just scan through it real quick just to remind ourselves where we've been. Verses... 1 through 17, we see that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. So you've got uh, a, a man who has leprosy. You've got someone who's sick and dying, who's the, the servant of the centurion in that second account. And then you've got uh, a woman with a fever. Peter's mother-in-law had a, a horrible fever. She's laid up. And Jesus comes and he 
is sovereign over sickness and death. He has authority over sickness and death. And then we jump down to verse 23, and we see that even the elements obey King Jesus. Like, we can predict the weather. We can't control the weather, right? Jesus has authority over the weather. And then today we're going to see that Jesus has authority over dark spiritual forces. Jesus has authority over demons, those that hate our God. Now, I don't know about you guys. This text can maybe sometimes feel a little far off because I've never been around someone who's demon-possessed, as far as I know, right? And honestly, if you read the Bible, apart from the Gospels, apart from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, demon possession is pretty rare in the Bible. It's debatable whether, you know, it's truly found in the Old Testament, if at all. And then it's not spoken of a lot in the letters of Paul or the rest of the New Testament. But in the Gospels, it seems to be happening and spoken of a lot. And I, I think it's kind of because Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's the ultimate authority. Dark spiritual forces know that, and they rise up to resist because, like, the true, the king is here. The true authority has arrived, and so they know it's time to resist. And that's what we have in our text for today, starting in verse 28. These two men come out and confront Jesus, or as we're going to see, are confronted by him, maybe. And they have this interesting interchange. And I just want us to pause and remind ourselves of something really quick. Oftentimes, I feel like, for me personally, and maybe you can relate to this, when we, when we read a, a, an account like this, it can sometimes feel kind of far off. It kind of sometimes feel like a fairy tale or like, you know, this fantastical story that doesn't really land with my daily experience. And so... In that sense, I think it can be easy for us to kind of compartmentalize and be like, well, that's just over here in this kind of fairy tale land of like movies and stories and stuff that doesn't really apply. And then my real life is over here. But I want to remind us this morning that we want to define our experience by the Bible and not the other way around. Okay, so meaning just because I have so little experience with something like I find here in the Bible doesn't mean it's not real, right? So before we kind of chalk up what we see in the Bible to like fairy tale land or, you know, thinking that way, maybe it doesn't feel super relevant. Like I've never seen someone possessed by a demon. What, what does this text have to do with me? I just want to to be taught and reminded this morning by God's word that always implies that there's probably more going on than my physical eyeballs can actually see and take in. Just because it's, 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 it's not physical or experiential, empirical, doesn't mean that it's not real. The Bible doesn't always explain that. It just simply asserts it, Right? But the Bible just simply assumes that there is an unseen realm. It doesn't explain it. It just asserts it. And, and the Bible, you know, doesn't satisfy our curiosity, maybe as some of us would like, on how all this stuff works and fits together. Like the book of Job teaches us that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that Job didn't understand. And he never really got answers about. And once in a while, the Bible peels back the curtain just a little bit. And just says, hey, 
be reminded, it's not all about just what you see with your eyes. And let me just give you one example. This is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. It'll be on the screen. It says this. Paul's writing to the ancient church in Ephesus, and he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here it is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, like that which you can feel, taste, touch, see, hold on to. It's like we don't just, like the, the battleground is not there. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Here it is. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So just take it as a given. These things are very real, whether we experience them in our daily life or not. Our definition of real is established by God's word. And not first and foremost by our experience. Our experience is important, but maybe it's secondary or tertiary. Okay? So that being said... Just as a reminder for us in, in the Christian worldview, okay? Let's dive into the text and take a, look, a closer look. So, set the stage here, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So Jesus just got done calming the storm. They're going across the lake. They arrive on shore. And more kind of madness ensues. Met by these demon-possessed guys. And these are violent dudes. Scary dudes. Horror movie kind of dudes. These guys are a menace to society. Causing people to reroute themselves. Did you see that there at the end of verse 28? So fierce that no one could pass that way. So when Kim and I were first married... We had a big dog, a big German shepherd. And um, I just loved having a, a big dog like that, very beautiful animals. And our, our dog was named Moses. And we, um, we just uh, loved this dog, raised it as a puppy. And he got to be big. He got to be like a classic kind of big police-looking dog, right? Like kind of big, broad head and, and, and broad shoulders. And sometimes German shepherds can be kind of skinny. This, this guy was thick. And um, he was tough looking, and probably 100 pounds. And I would be faithful to take him on walks, you know, a, a, a good dog is a tired dog, right? And uh, so I'd take him on walks all the time, and we would be walking down, remember this clearly, we'd be walking down the sidewalk, and oftentimes if someone would be coming this way towards us on the same side of the sidewalk, we would be walking towards them, and you would just see them pause and look at us and be like, nope, and they would cross the street and go to the other side, on the other sidewalk, right? Because, you know, it's a big dog. You know, sometimes German shepherds have a reputation, and they're like, I don't know about this animal. I don't know about me as the owner. Like, what's going to happen? I'm not risking it. I'm going the other side of the street. So when, when you reroute yourself, you know, that's an obvious threat, right? Or else you wouldn't reroute yourself. And that's what's happening in this town. That's what's happening in this town. People are being rerouted because of a threat. No one could pass by where these guys were. They would harm you. So this is a real threat that's being presented. So we also have info about these guys who are so deeply afflicted that they were a real threat. 
Other places in the Bible, there's the same account with some different details. It says that they were cutting themselves, that they were like howling and screaming. And this is just a, 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 a scary scene. But here's what Matthew 8 has shown us. Number one, that sickness and disease is a real threat. Number two, that the elements can be a real threat. And now here, dark spiritual forces can be a real threat. But here's what's really interesting when you look at this text. Jesus is not threatened. But guess who's threatened? The demons are threatened. Right? Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now let's pause and and think about verse 29. I think this is really fascinating and worthy of reflection for us. Here's the point that I want you to see. The demons know the truth about God. The demons know the truth about God. The demons have right answers about God. The demons can pass a theology test. In fact, get an A on a theology test about Jesus. Right? Look at First of all, number one, they know who Jesus is. Look at what they say. They say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They attribute his identity to him correctly, right? Like, oftentimes you see in the, in the scriptures, in the gospels, that people are confused about Jesus. Like, what's up with this guy? This guy teaches with authority. Like, who is he, they say. Or Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? Me Implying, like, he knows. They don't know who he is. But interestingly, the demons are not confused. They identify him rightly. They have good, the theological term would be Christology. They have good Christology. Secondly, they have good eschatology. Eschatology is just a fancy way to talk about the study of the end times. What will happen at the end of all known history? And they know about that. They know that their days are numbered. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning the time that's appointed, that they're aware of, that Jesus is going to come and finally put away all dark spiritual forces. They know their days are numbered. They know there's a time. They've got good eschatology. So isn't it interesting that demons have correct theology? They know the right answers. What does that tell us? It tells us that we can have all the right answers and still be demonic. Right? You can know the truth, but not have a heart change. You can know the truth and not have a heart change. The question maybe is this. I don't care what you know, but I want to know what you love. What do you love? Right? See, the demons, they know the truth about Jesus, but what what are their feelings about it? They hate it. They hate him. The Pharisees knew the truth about Jesus, right? They saw Lazarus be physically raised from the dead. And then what does John 11 say? John 11 says, after they saw that happen, they left and they plotted how they would kill Jesus. You would think Lazarus being raised from the dead ushers in revival, no, it stirred up more hatred for Jesus. They knew the truth. There was no debating. But they hated it. Church people can come every week and be exposed to lots of truth and pass the theology test and still have hard hearts. 
So the question is this, do you know the truth, but do you not just stop there? Do, do we go farther than just knowing the truth? How do we feel about the truth? Do we love the truth? I think a real beautiful example of this is when Jesus reinstates Peter. So maybe some of you are new to your Bible. I'll just summarize the end of Jesus' life in reference to Peter. So Peter came to Jesus and basically said, no matter what happens, I will never desert you. I will never leave you, even if I have to die. And Jesus says, well, you know what, Peter? You're a little overconfident. And that overconfidence will lead you to not really trust me and depend on me. And so I'm going to kind of knock you out at the knees here and show you. And and you're going to see that you're not as strong as you think you are. And you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, that's never going to happen. Well, sure enough, it happens. And when Jesus is being led to be a way to be crucified, Peter's confronted. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, and denies him three times. Jesus dies on the cross, and Peter feels this amazing weight of conviction because what Jesus said came to pass. He was shown to be foolish. And after the resurrection, you can imagine, we don't have a lot of details about this, but you can imagine Jesus felt very, very convicted. And Jesus comes to Peter on the beach, and he basically wants to reinstate him to being a leader. And what does Jesus ask Peter? He doesn't ask him to pass a theology test, as important as that is. I'm not diminishing the the importance of our theology. But he knows that Peter knows the right, right answers. So what does he say to Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? He says it three times. Peter, do you love me? That's the key question that the demons here give us insight into. See, what you love will change your life. So the question for us, I think, that we should wrestle with is, are we different than the demons? And how do we know? We know based on our affections. We know based on that which we hold to be most valuable. Like what you hold as most valuable is what you love. It's just another way of saying what you love, right? Like do we know the truth about Jesus and love Jesus? Or is it just head knowledge that doesn't descend 12 inches to our hearts? Because maybe we love something more. Think about this in terms of how God relates to us in the gospel. God doesn't just know facts about you. Of course, he does know facts about you, but it's not just facts about you. God says that he loves you. Well, how do you know that? Why would I say that? Because he's demonstrated by laying down his life for you as a gift to be received by faith so that you can know him and love him forever. Like, that's the essence of the Christian life. God doesn't just know facts about you. He's demonstrated that he loves you so that you can love him and know him forever. So how are we different from the demons? I think it's good for us to ask that question. Where do our affections lie? Is it just head or is it heart? Let's keep reading. Verse 30. Now it gets even, even more crazy. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, 
if there's another just, you know, aside, the authority of Jesus, they had to beg Jesus. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now this is peculiar, is it not? I mean, just questions that come to mind for me as I'm reading this. Like, do demons need a place to land? I mean, can't Jesus just banish them and they're gone? Like, do they need a place to land? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Another question comes to mind. Um, did they maybe just want to create more chaos by entering the pigs and then causing the pigs to be destroyed? Maybe. I don't know for sure. Maybe uh, they wanted to bring dishonor to Jesus by him getting the blame for the pigs being destroyed. Maybe, but... You know, Jesus would have known that, so why did he then allow it? I'm just trying to demonstrate here. There's times, you know, you might look at me as the professional Christian. I'm not, okay? Um, There's times when I and you, like, we just don't know all the answers about what the Bible presents. And that's okay. It's okay to say I don't know sometimes. And the Bible just doesn't explain what happens here. It just asserts it, just recounts it. So because there isn't an explanation, it's probably not super fruitful for us to speculate. But we don't have to speculate about this. We know this is true, that the devil is all about stealing, killing, and destroying. We know that because God has told us that about the devil. And that's what happens here with these pigs. Eventually, wherever the the devil is, he's going to destroy. So that's what happens with these pigs. And as we keep reading, we learn that this event that we don't totally understand, this event was really traumatic for the people that were overseeing these farm animals. Look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So the the caretakers of the pigs, they, they flee the scene, they spread the news about what had happened. Now, this is understandable, right? Like, if you imagine yourself in this scene. Seeing this go down, demon-possessed dudes, super violent. They come into their right mind. These pigs lose their minds, and they go and they run off the cliff and, and drown in the water, and it's this big herd. And, I mean, that's, that's a dramatic scene, right? So you can imagine if you had been there, you better believe you're going to be talking about it, right? You, you're not going to believe what I just saw. So that's what happens in the text. That makes a lot of sense. But I think there's a lot here for us to consider when it comes to the response of the people. Look at verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Isn't that bizarre? Like, why would they react that way? Like, Jesus does this amazing miracle and removes this violent threat from their town, and they tell him to get lost. Like, that's kind of wild, right? I think it says something about their values. And I think it would be somewhat easy to say that they rejected Jesus because they cared more about pigs than these two human beings. Now, why would they do that? Well, because... Farm animals in our day and age and in theirs represent lots of money, right? Lots of money. Animals in an agricultural society represent a kind of currency, right? 
You can sell them and make lots of money. A different account in Luke or Mark, I can't remember which, say that there were 2,000 pigs, roughly 2,000. So Jesus took away some money from these people. Why? Because he valued people more than money. He valued deliverance and, and, and authority over dark spiritual forces than money. But it seems like these people had different values. They loved money more than people. Now, before we judge them, we can see ourselves in this very easily. Can we not? There's a lot of examples in, the, in our modern world and in our own hearts probably where it's easy for us to love money more than people. Just a couple examples that I thought about from our culture this week. Number one, I'll step on some toes here, uh, the NFL. There's a lot of research done in the last five, six, seven years about concussions and trauma through playing football. Now, if, if, if like two little fourth graders are running into each other at full speed, that's more like playing bumper cars, right? They're not that heavy. They're not that strong. They're not that athletic. You can only do so much harm. You've got a guy who's 6'5 and 250, and he runs a 4740, and he's running into another guy that can do that same kind of thing athletically. That's like a car crash, right? And so there's been a lot of research. You probably saw the movie, maybe some of you saw it called, I think it was just called Concussion with Will Smith a few years ago. Um, it kind of documents this story. And, and there's all this research to show that this is detrimental to human beings. And the NFL put a lot of effort into squashing that research. Why? Well, it's not hard to figure out. The NFL is a billion-dollar industry. I mean, it's a form of idolatry in our culture, you know. And so we value money more than we value people. You could think of just a decade ago in the mortgage crisis. And all of, you know, the, the sky is falling financially for so many people. Well, how did that happen? Well, there were so, you know, there's a small group of people, a lot of bankers, a lot of real estate agents that knew they were going to get rich off giving people these horrible loans and telling them that it'll never change and you'll be fine and, Zero down on your house. It doesn't matter. Just go for it. Why do they do that? Because they're going to get rich. They knew it was, a, it was a bad deal. Value money more than people. Like we, Human nature has not changed that much in 2,000 years. So let's be honest here. The loss of these pigs, that represented a loss of money, Right? But here's the question for us, if, we're, if we can put ourselves in the, the, the place of the villagers. That's good to imagine yourself in, in their place. Is not a miracle of the deliverance of these men more important than money? Are not people more valuable than money? Is not Jesus' authority on display more important than money? Like, we can see ourselves in the text. Will we still value Jesus if he makes the claim, and he does, that there are more important things than our money? Like people that need him and need to see his authority on display as a blessing, as a removal of violence. Like if you were one of those villagers, how would you have responded? 
Like, how do we respond now when we're asked to see the authority of Jesus and submit to it, even if it costs us something? See, like I said with the the Pharisees, you'd expect with these villagers that there would be revival that would break out. Or at minimum, Jesus, this is really rocking my categories right now. Can you just explain what's going on here? Like, who are you? Like, what is this? I I have a heart at least to, to, to ask questions and receive. That should be the baseline, right? And then beyond that, it's like, no, revival should break out, and Jesus is Lord, and we want, we want you, Jesus. We're not telling you to get out. We're asking and begging you to stay. That's what you would expect, but that's not what happens here. But we know, oftentimes human nature will get most testy when you touch my money. Now, you touch anything, don't touch my money, Right? One commentator I read this week said this. He says, all down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers the pigs. So just to wrap up, this is an odd text, right? This is an odd text. I think the big point that jumps off the page that we've seen all through Matthew 8 is that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority, and his authority is good, and he has the authority to deliver, right? And and in our text specifically, the first thing we should see is that Jesus has authority over dark spiritual forces. They are scared of him. He's not scared of them. They have to beg him. He doesn't have to beg anybody of anything. Jesus is the one with authority over those spiritual forces of darkness. Number two, I want to remind us, it's possible for us to know the right answers and not love the right answers. The question is not just what you think, but what you think and what do you love. And then finally, are are not humans more valuable than pigs? Is Jesus not more valuable than money? So of those three things, maybe there's one that you need to wrestle with more today. Which one would it be? I feel like Jesus is encroaching on my pocketbook. Or I'm not really sure if I'm convinced about his authority. I think I have some work to do about, I know I got the right answers. Maybe I've been around church for a long time, but where's my heart at? Lord, help me. Would you help me delight in you and not just know facts about you? Lord, I want to delight in you. Lord, would you help me with that? Which one of these three things do you need to wrestle with today? Maybe have a conversation with someone in the car on the way home or make a phone call. Ask someone to pray for you. In your city group, maybe this coming week, ask for someone to pray for you about one of these themes. I just want to call us as a church that we would do this heart work together as we open God's word and as we submit to his authority that's for our good. It's not to squash us. Matthew's not trying to to show this original audience and us that Jesus' authority is out there so that we can be squashed. If you see anything, Jesus' authority is for our flourishing. Who wants to lay in bed with a fever? Who wants to be possessed by a demon? Who wants to be crushed by by the waves? Who wants to to have, you know, horrible disease like leprosy? No, Jesus' authority is for our blessing. It's for our good. It's for our deliverance. And so don't view it as a threat. Embrace it with joy. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for what you are doing in us through your word, working by your spirit, and may it continue for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.